0: Our passage this morning will come from 1 Kings. There are various verses, but mainly chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. I've met a few of the new visitors this morning. You've come to Grace Church on a wonderful morning where we talk about dying well. So welcome, right? Welcome to our, our positive church. One of the things we do at Grace is we preach through books of the Bible, or in this case a character, David, but mainly first, parts of 1 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel or parts, uh, and um, coming to the end of David's life, just so you know where we're going, uh, Shane will preach next week, our final two-service spring Sunday, and then starting on May 6th, we'll begin a Colossians series, plus there'll be guests preaching throughout the summer at times as well. So this is our last look at the life of David. And I, I kind of struggled, uh, well, one, I do that every week, but I struggled on what, you know, what do, I, what do we want to do at the end of this life? Most, there's not this one place in the Bible where David just ends. There's sort of an ending speech, and then you read the next chapter, and there's another ending speech, and then in First Chronicles, there's a few, and um, I wanted more narrative. I wanted to see David and his end, and I became a little bit somber coming to the end of the series. i invested a lot of time and so I thought let's talk about dying. Not a good idea. And even as I bring it up I'm sure there's this weird thing that happens when all some of you maybe all of you have had that moment just this morning just this last few moments. Oh yeah like that's a thing right it's like w- water to fish. It's like oh, I don't even know what's there. This week if you follow the news you heard heard of the Southwest airline flight that had the the, the window blow out and one passenger um, was, uh, was killed. The engine blew. and uh, you just, I, I was actually um, looking at the lady that had done the Facebook Live post. That was her response to the tragedy. Did you hear about her? If you fly southwest, you can buy your Wi-Fi for the day. She would already bought hers. And, and when this is all happening, she thought, the only way I can connect to people is through Facebook Live. So she does that. But we, we all know that there was a tragedy. There was a death. And I, as I looked it up, I started looking at this lady's life. I just thought, I've flown Southwest. And she had a window seat. Like, you have to work hard to get a window seat. And I'm not trying to be funny. It's just, like, the thought of, like, how in one minute you are doing everything right. I did my early bird. I'm in my spot. Like, are you seven? I'm six. You're doing it all correctly. You get your seat. And then it's over. Just like that. Aren't you glad you came, guests? Death is uh, what we've been told the two uh, guarantees are death and taxes. I have found out you can get extensions pretty easily on your taxes. So really, it's just death. So we're going to look at David's death. He dies well. And we're going to really look not so much at him, though we are, but the way everyone around him is responding to his demise. So 1 Kings chapter one. Uh, Dan will have the, the scripture up for us. I'll, I'll, there will be some verses I'll cover and some I'll skip. Please follow along with me. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, "'Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm.'" So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of the service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next, after Absalom. He conferred with Joab the son of Zariah and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet and Shemaiah and Rai and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed Sheep, oxen, fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Hagith, has become king? And David our Lord does not know it. Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice. That you may save your own life in the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, did you, not, did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah the king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So that's Nathan telling Bathsheba, we've got a plan. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, has not been invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all of Israel are on you, to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass, when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders." Now, I'm going to skip a little bit here, but to tell you that Nathan then comes in and does the very thing he planned, and it works. David says no. Solomon's the king, and they have a hasty coronation. Later, there'll be a more official second coronation. Um, but when this word gets to Adonijah, he's in a feast. They're all eating, and someone walks in and says, "We have problems." And they all basically scatter. They're scared. They realize they made mistakes. Adonijah um, realizes he's not going to be king. And then I just want to read this part from chapter 2 to show us that David does, in fact, make Solomon the king. He says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me saying i excuse me if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul you shall not lack a man on the throne of israel this is the word of the lord Heavenly Father, I pray that you would attend to our discussion this morning, this sermon, that you would be glorified, that your spirit would open our eyes to receive the truth for your glory. Amen. I ran to my office. Maybe some of you noticed that. I I wrote this down. My daughter has a stuffed animal. And when you squeeze it, and just as an aside, don't give those gifts. Because it's the parents who have to live with that. But anyway, this one says... Now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. Watch me as I run and play, keep me safe both night and day. Isn't that beautiful? That's not how I remember it. (laughs) Every night my mother would lean over my bed and say, Now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. But if I die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. What? (laughs) What? Like, is that a thing? Mom, can that happen? Was my response. Like, I'm laying here. I'm asleep. I feel healthy. You're going to turn the light out. Is this this an option? That's how death really does work, doesn't it? It it shows up in unexpected places. It shows up in unexpected ways. And in our passage, we see people responding to David's passing in unexpected ways. Or maybe I should say common ways. Um, There's a great book. I don't know if it's recommended, It's, it's but uh, Ernest Becker, The Denial of Death, it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning work from the 70s. Interestingly, he published it and died of cancer not long later, but I don't think that influenced his research. But here's his premise. First of all, he says, every one of us is a narcissist, and we develop hero projects. Like, we want to have heroes. But our heroes that we choose really are stoking our own narcissism. And all of this, he would say, is a way that we avoid dying. And he calls it our immortality projects. We all have immortality projects we use to make us forget the reality of death and dying. And so we're going to, in a fun way, expose your immortality projects this morning. Because the characters in this story, these people, are putting on display their immortality projects. Do you believe that about yourself? That you have methods and ways of avoiding the reality of dying and death? What we're going to find is that, that if we have a true hero, all your heroes will let you down, but if we have the true hero, you can actually face the reality of dying well. That's what we're going to look at. So cheer up. We're going to keep talking about dying. Okay. Uh, I couldn't find the perfect video, but in 2011, LeBron James goes on. I did find this video. It's on YouTube where he says someone had, he had changed teams. Remember, he went from Cleveland to Miami. He had a lot of scoffers. Finally, he just said, look, tomorrow morning, he'd like lost the game. and People were mad. Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up, he says to the fans, in your miserable lives. Something like that. But I'm going to wake up and I'm going to still be rich. What I remember was finding a video or someone sent it through Facebook or something of a guy replying to LeBron James perfectly. I just couldn't find it. But basically, he says, LeBron, we pay you to not remind us of that. Like, that's what you're for. Your job is so that we don't remember these truths about our, our lives, that we don't remember about our dullness, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was hysterical, and I couldn't find it probably because uh, it's been seven years ago and LeBron's video still exists. But that's what we're going to look at. What are the things, the ways we are numbing the pain of death? And we're going to look at three lies and a truth. Have you all ever played three truths and a lie? Anyone? You, you tell four things about yourself. Or, am I doing that right? Well, I'm going to say three because it fits my outline. Okay, two truths and a lie. Well, we're doing three lies and a truth. Lie number one. As you see dying coming close to you, you can go to the past. Lie number one, you can can go backwards. You can do things to recapture the past. Where do we see that? Right here in the first few verses, David is aging. He's old. He can't get warm. And look at verse two, the servants said to him, let us seek a young woman to keep you warm. Now, let me just tell, we're going to, it's awkward. We all know it. We all get the undertones. Um, But let me just say, first of all, I think they had a legitimate desire for David to be warm, physically warm. Um, And what's even, well, we'll talk about in a moment, it's more stark, is that none of his wives or concubines were volunteering. So they needed to go outside of that that group. But there is, for certain, I think, a sense in which at least some of the servants probably thought, what's, you know, the old David? Remember the one that sent me to go get Bathsheba? Like, let me get him going again. I don't like the one that I don't like the version of David that's cold and kind of cranky or calm or not. I want vibrant David. And so they go and they bring uh, Abijah the Shunammite into his his home, his room. I, I call it the midlife crisis. I think that's kind of my thought there. Like, you know, that car I had when I was sixteen, or I wanted but couldn't afford. I'm going to go buy that car. Or I'm going to go do that thing, get that tattoo. Whatever the version of it is, it's I'm, I look in the mirror and I see death is coming. What can I do to fix it? What surgery? What? Whatever. Do you see what I'm saying? I think that is going on in the passage from the servants. They're, they want to revive old David. Now, I will say, though, in somewhat defense of them, there is some medical evidence that... Um, this was a a possibly, not common, but a used practice to help an elderly person. So it sounds strange. And of course, it would have to be like royalty or someone exceedingly wealthy. But there is some sense that a young person in the arms of David, and I want to remind us that he knew her not. So there is that sense in which um, there might have been helpful things there health-wise. But I want to bring up the point again, where are the wives? Where are the concubines? Where's Bathsheba? There are studies that say when you sleep with someone, you're healthier. Has anyone heard those studies? I I didn't go research it. I just heard it. It's one of those studies you hear. And you think, well, that's good. I'm married. That works for me. I'm good. You know, coffee's good for you. Yay. Coffee's not good for you. I don't think that's a good study. You know, (laughs) that kind of thing. So this idea of the servants don't want to be near him when he's dying. They want someone else to come in, it seems like, to be his nursemaid. Bathsheba doesn't really want to be in there. I don't know where the concubines are. How that works? I don't see Abigail. So it's it's Abijah the Shunammite coming in. But the reality is, what's going on is everybody's afraid of facing the reality of dying. I want to read you two quotes from spiritual giants, Jonathan Edwards. If you uh, he was um, in the 1600s, kind of a not really a Puritan, but Puritan minded, but he was part of the Great Awakening in America. Very famous, not only theologian, but even philosopher. He he had resolutions that he wrote. I highly recommend you seeing his resolutions. They're crazy. He's so godly. You're like, really? Number nine, resolved. And he wrote this before the age of 20. To think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. That's his resolution. Resolution. Number 10, resolved. When I feel pain, to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. When I feel pain, I think, where's the Tylenol? Like, where's the doctor? He's saying, no, no, no. Like, also, in a ten, in a, yes, take care of your needs, but he wanted to rethink about his future. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. When we visit the graves of those who have died in Christ, we ought not to weep for them, or if we weep at all, it should be with the regret that we are not yet admitted to the same reward. <laughs> Why are you crying? Well, you, you miss Steve? No. I, uh, sorry, Steve Smalley, I know you're out there. This is not Steve Smalley. Uh, no, I'm not sad about that. I'm sad I'm still living. That's what Spurgeon is saying. He says, To die daily is the business of Christians. It is greatly wise to talk about our last hours, to make ourselves familiar with the grave. Our venerable forefathers had a strange habit I challenge some of you to do this, of placing on their table, I guess he says the dressing table, you can do it your desk at work, a head. It could be a real skull or a fake skull. But all of the point is to remind you of your future. Isn't that great news? That's uh, Spurgeon and Edwards. I mean, if you don't like my sermon, you don't like Spurgeon, you don't like Edwards. <laughs> and I can live with that. So, I think that that's the way Christians are supposed to live, but everybody around David, like his servants especially, are saying, look, let's just let's fix this problem. Let's bring back his youth. What are your methods of getting back to the glory days? Start to think about that. How are you trying to do it? Now, I go to CrossFit. I'm going to just put it out there. I want to get healthy. So, I'm not against A, I could be doing it for all the wrong reasons. Sorry, Rhonda and Mark. But I'm not, we're not against being healthy or eating well or et cetera, but the deep question is what's behind it? Why am I doing these things? Am I doing it to try to prolong my life because I'm afraid of, of death? Then it would be wrong. If I'm doing it for the glory of God, then it's beautiful. We'll keep building on that as we go because the method number two is uh, instead of looking at the glory days, um, I'm going to just call it King Me. Have you played checkers before? You want to get to the back line? Put your thing, and then you want to get kinged, right? That's Adonijah. His response is, "Dad's getting old. I'm going to be the king." So in verse five and following, we see him say that I will be king, and he begins this process of trying to just put himself into the role that his dad had. Now it's what's this is kind of hard to like apply because he had in some ways a rightful claim to the throne. I mean. Just so you know the structure, Amnon's dead. Absalom, who killed him, tries to be king and dies. We're missing the third brother. And the fourth brother is Adonijah, who's as handsome as Absalom, who's next in line. He's thinking, this is normal. My dad's getting old. It's kind of time. Not only that, the text tells us as he begins to do the chariot thing and the the king thing, his dad doesn't seem to come tell him it was wrong. Every parent in this room knows that story. You know, I would, you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission, kind of thing. So maybe his dad didn't even know. But there is a sense in which he's like, "But I didn't hear it was wrong, so it's okay." But what makes it worse is the reason he goes forward with it is because the people like Joab and the priest Zadok and others tell him, "Hey, this is probably a good idea. You have a priest, you have Joab, who's been with David for many years, telling you you should become king." Right? That's tempting. Now, I'm, I, in my, I'm like, how do I apply that to us? Because none of us are in that role, right? Um, some thoughts would just be, where in your life do you think that next level is yours to have? You know? Hey, you should ask for that promotion. Hey, you shouldn't have this problem anymore. We should get rid of that. You should be over here. Um, obviously, you can think politically. Someone might tap your shoulder. Aaron and I played with the mayor uh, of Stillwater, and he did look at us and say, Hey, do you know anyone that wants to be a councilman in my place? And there's that split second, I could be councilman. <laughs> and I don't have to run. So I said, Aaron, you do it. But still, there's those moments in life where it's like advancement, glory, promotion. Those aren't wrong, either more than exercise is wrong, et cetera. But are you aware of the reasons why we want those things? What is it we're trying to ignore? What is it we're trying to hide? Furthermore, are you struck by the fact that there, does, there doesn't seem to be any sadness from Adonijah? When you read about David becoming the king, it is almost overwhelmingly strange how sad he is about Saul. Remember? And Jonathan? Jonathan? I mean, Saul's trying to kill him and end his life over and over. And two times, David allows him to live. And then time passes, and he dies at the hand of someone else, and David's going to be king, and he weeps. He mourns. David is showing us that is a a real view of death. His own son, Adonijah, is celebrating David's death already before he dies. So that's heartbreaking. So don't be that. Don't do king me. And then thirdly, it's... uh, Just self-preservation. A lot of us, that's what we want to do. We know death is coming, and we're going to do whatever we can to preserve ourselves. We see that with Nathan and Bathsheba. Look at verse 11. Nathan, remember Nathan, he's the prophet that came to David and said the story about the sheep, referring to Bathsheba. Remember? And David repented. Here, we don't see Nathan at all talking much about Yahweh or or trusting in the Lord. We just see him go to Bathsheba and hatch a plan. Listen to verse 12. Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. It's not, let's glorify Yahweh. Solomon's the rightful king. Let's go to David. The last time I did it, he listened well and repented and wrote one of the greatest psalms of all time. Let me go and and tell him. No. No. It's let's hatch a plan. So Bathsheba goes, and remember the plan is she's going to walk in and, and, and do her part. And then right after that, Nathan's going to walk in. And it's like, you know, cockroaches. You see one, you kill it, you see two. You've got a, like a, you've got a problem, right? I just saw a second cockroach. Call the exterminator. We've got millions of cockroaches. That's the psychology they're using. Bathsheba walks in. David listens. Nathan comes right in after, and it's like, wait a minute. This is serious. Let's, t- let's stop this. So they have this plan. And what's the plan? Self-preservation. Look at look how Bathsheba says it, verse 21. Otherwise, she said so many wonderful things. She should have just stopped. Then in verse 21, otherwise, it'll come to pass when you die, <laughs> when my Lord falls asleep, she says it very kindly, with his father, that I and my son Solomon will be a- offenders. And she's correct, by the way. They probably would have been hurt if not killed imprisoned. So, her motivation is self-preservation. I want to live. You're dying. You're toast. You're going to sleep with your fathers. One of the quotes that I read as I looked at this is, anxiety is basically the fear of annihilation. And what you're seeing in this passage is anxiousness, annihilation fears. People are fig- trying to figure out, where is this going to leave me? The hero's going to die. What is that going to do for me? And then they deal with that pain in different ways. I'm not going to name which child, but we have four children, and I've asked this one child if it would be okay with me sharing this story. It's a few weeks ago for a different sermon. I didn't do it then, so I'm doing it now. This particular child had the flu or something. You know when you get really sick and it just you can't get comfortable? And I, this is something that he's going to go to counseling for because we do, or she, uh, <laughs> tease him or her. Um, but the words that came out of this child's mouth at one particular low point in, this, in the illness was, why is this happening to me? And we, as good parents, of course, like, poor kid. And like, what? Like, like you are going to go unscathed through life without a flu? There's something in all of us that just can't believe harm would come our way. How can this happen to me, Right? And I won't tell you who it is, but you can go ask one of the people about that later. What are you saying that to? How could this happen to me? Or what would you say that to if it came into your world? How is this fair? How can this happen? I've heard stories. I've heard of disasters. I've heard of illnesses. I've heard of failures and financial difficulties. but, But me? Narcissism. Sorry, child, if you hear this someday. We all have narcissism, right? We all have at our core the, the belief that somehow we're not going to die. Ernest Becker continues in this book saying his view, and you could challenge him. You can, he's dead, but you can challenge his views, is that the man who will go into, you know, you watch the warfare where you just walk into gunshots, that even that has a bit of um, I'm doing it for everyone around me. I'm the hero, right? Right? And he's saying even that has a narcissistic feel to it. I know that's a lot to take in and a lot to, to hear, but it's true. And what I would ask you to do is start to think about what things in your life, if they were altered, what, what's your pressing point? I mean, it could be as simple as this. I won't drive that kind of car. Like, just think about the car you drive. Everyone, picture the car you currently <laughs> drive. And then if I said, I'm going to give you a model just like it but three years earlier, Right? Like what? Just just that little cringe, or what home or neighborhood would you just not live in, right? What school would you not go to? Oh, you? What schedule would you not take on? What friendships would you not have? What, in other words, I want you to start by just thinking: What places in my life do I just simply say, "Not me, not that, not going there"? Now, take that and go a little bit deeper. Do you hear the whisper as you lean in of fear, of anxiety, of what that might say about you, of how that might reveal something in you to the world that you don't want revealed? It might peel back that curtain that you worked so hard, that immortality project that you've cultivated over many, many years that we desperately want to have around us like a blanket, right? David was able to look death in the face. David is special for that reason. Um, he saw it coming for many, many years. Um, I'm going to give you just a quick aside. It, today is the 22nd day of the month. Am I right? A good idea is to just, hey, I struggle reading my Bible. If that's you, read the psalm of the day. Just pick it up and read that psalm. Today is Psalm 22. Now, that being said, I'd already planned on using this psalm in this sermon, but it's a nice sovereign blessing. But just that's that's something to think about. It's easy to jump in your Bible that way. Um, anyway, you only get to cover the first 30 psalms. But I can talk to you about how to advance beyond that later. Psalm 22, David is looking at death in the face. It's not at his deathbed. It's earlier in his life. But he says, oh, my God, I cry by day. But you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So he's, he's crying out. And then he has this section, but you are Holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase parts of this. He's preaching now the truth. Then he goes back, but I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind. All who see me mock me. He, it's a little bit hyperbole, but he's poetically and probably in his soul feeling complete and utter scorn by mankind. Then in verse nine of Psalm 22, he picks it back up at you. Are he who took me from the womb? He's preaching again. He's going back to truth. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. Do you hear him going back and forth? His own death, his own struggle. At one point he says, "Um, I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My tongue sticks to my jaws. He is not sugarcoating his condition. He is fully aware of his struggle, of death, of his impending doom. And he's, he's writing about it. They obviously use this as worship. Um, he's dealing with it. And then he continues, but Lord, be not far off. He continues his prayer. Help me, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. So he's praising God for this future healing to come. From you comes my praise in the great congregation My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For your kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. David is talking about the true king. Now, some of you are on to me. You know this psalm, the way he begins this psalm, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that is the very psalm that Jesus himself utters on the cross. What that means is that Jesus read this psalm, memorized this psalm, and when he comes to the passage that says, They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count my bones. They divide my garments. He knows who they're talking about. He knows who David is referring to himself. He looks death in the face. And what Jesus knew when he read this psalm is that he was going to one day, someday, die for you. Die so that David's very prayer would be answered. One day, someday, the affliction of the afflicted would be healed. In a little bit, we're going to read from Romans 5 as our um, confession of faith for the week. And in Romans 5, Paul takes that truth, takes that reality, and he says, For one, in verse 7, will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. I have never liked that verse. And I, I'm not trying to be funny. I, I think I just realized this week. Have you ever read something that like, you know, I, never have, I just now understood that? I think what Paul is saying, there are people who will die for heroic causes, for good people. They'll have a, an immortality program in their mind, and they'll think, this is what I'm supposed to do. But nobody dies for sinners. I have heard that so many times, and maybe you have too, that you just tune that out. Uh, this is a, but think about that for a moment. There was a point in time, if you're a Christian where you stood as an enemy to the cross, even if you don't know when it was, it is true of you, that you stood as an absolute and utter enemy to God, and Jesus looked at you and said, you are mine, and I'm coming for you. And if you were left to your own device, you would have said, no, you're not. But he doesn't care, because you are his. You are his child from the womb. And he says, you are mine, and he takes your sin and he places it on and He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying this is painful, though it is. This, these thorns are painful. He's saying the pain of your wrath, of your propitiation, of your pouring it onto me for the people who I'm saving, that is pain. And that is real death. That is final death. And Jesus is the only one that will ever have faced it. And you and I don't die if we believe that. We don't die. In fact, when, when um, I think when Bathsheba says, You will sleep with your fathers, and a little bit later, the, the writer tells us in verse 10 of chapter 2, David slept with his fathers. That is, an, that is a beautiful picture of what the Christian has as our hope. Our, we will appear to sleep, but we will be in glory with God, and that is our calling, and that is our hope, our future with Jesus. So, what do we do now? What do you do in the meantime? It is 34 minutes in and I I just need two minutes. Can I have two minutes to basically break all the rules of preaching? I could not find any sermon on this topic. I could not find any. Yes, Doug, he's laughing right now. What do you do with Abishag the Shunammite? You can email me, I will welcome your texting, but here's what I'm gonna say. In some ways, she's the Jesus figure in the passage. In some ways, okay? Some ways, guests, some ways. Why? I want you to just imagine, uh, they go out and say, we need a young, young, beautiful woman who is going to spend maybe three years or so with this person who's dying. His wife doesn't want him. His concubines don't want him. His kids don't want him. His servants don't want him. But you get to go in be vulnerable, be intimate, take care of him. I want to show you that when Bathsheba shows up to make her request, the narrator, who doesn't waste any words, says in verse 15, now the king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. So I don't think it's sexual. I think she's taking care like a nurse when no one else would care for him. And then later, Adonijah, I didn't read you the story, it comes later. After Solomon's the king, Adonijah says, can I marry her? And that's what makes Adonijah's life end. When Solomon hears that, he thinks you're done. Because it's known, it's assumed, that Abijah, that Abijah, this Shunammite, will not ever marry. Like her service to the king, that was it. Like this is your high point, is coming in and loving this hero. And that's what Jesus does for you. He loves you. He moves towards you and everyone's moving away. And all the thoughts you've had this discussion of death that make you uncomfortable, and maybe you've just tuned me out the whole time, know this. The one who has faced death will move close to you and has moved in close to you. And if you will rest in him, the true hero, then you can actually live with peace, which is, I think, the only peaceful person in this passage is David. Totally at peace. The one that's dying. It's everyone else that's freaking out. And we can know that peace if we know that hero. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the true hero who lived a perfect life and died that we may live. Yet, Lord, we do develop so many strategies to avoid our own pain of death. So many things we say, thoughts we have, lifestyles we live. Because if we're honest, we're afraid. Lord, I pray that we would Not look at our death, but look at our hero, you, Jesus, and be comforted knowing that this life is temporary. We are already immortal because of you, and we can live that way for your glory. Amen.